Have fun, guys. Okay, if you have a Bible with you, please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Um, I want to thank uh, Tom Schultz. Thank you for preaching last Sunday while we were away. It's Yes. It really is a comfort to me, pal, to know that you're there and... Um, I don't give away the pulpit to this church easily, and but I easily give it away to you because I trust you and I respect you. So thank you for filling in. Everybody, uh, everybody who chips in and helped fill in the gaps last week. Thanks, guys. Um, Nadine and I were away at our daughter's wedding. We had a delightful time. I think I said this already. Happiest we ever seen her, babe, right? Yes. I've never seen her happier than on her wedding day. And bride and groom were adorable. Is <laughs> one I I performed the ceremony, choked up with tears about five times through it. I wasn't sure I was going to actually make it all the way through, but there's that beginning part of the ceremony where you you do what they call the the declaration of consent, and so you say to the groom, "Will you have this woman?" And then you know to have and the whole is like a whole paragraph. And so I say, "Forrest, will you have this woman?" He goes, "I will." <laughs> I was like, Okay, okay. I, I got a few extra things I got to say first. <laughs> he just stole. He was kind of eager. <clears throat> and then when they uh, they exchanged the rings, he went first. It's her turn. And, and when they got engaged, he, he, he made out of wood this beautiful little box. Uh, so that, and he put her engagement ring in it. But he made it big enough to hold two rings so that they could use the box on the wedding day. Very, very thoughtful. Um, and in French it says je t'aime, which means I love you, on it. And uh, which is something that Nadine would say to the kids. Nadine's mom would say to the kids when they were younger. So it's you know, a special term of endearment for Anyway, he made this beautiful little box. And so their wedding rings are in the box. So I had the box open in my hand. And he took his ring when it was his turn. Now it's her turn. And so I, I usually say a few things first. And then she gets the ring. And before I could even get halfway through, you know, the purpose of this ring. She's reaching over, grabbing for that ring. And just to be a little ornery, I just kind of paused like an extra couple of moments before I said, you may kiss your bride. And the two of them were like pogoing, pinging back and forth, waiting for that moment. Anyway, it was awesome. They, they were delightful. The party was great. I, I've never seen them happier. And, and so it was, uh, it did our mama and papa heart good, right, to see our kids so happy. So we were away, we're happy to be back, but it was good. So on to today, I'm going to do a fourth message on the powerless place. What had begun as a, a one-up message has evolved into a series that, that wasn't my plan, but God gets to edit, and truly, each week I come before him, I just try to follow where he leads, and it seems like this is where he, he's leading, so I'm doing my best to follow. Just a little bit of review. In the powerless place, one... Uh, we looked at 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where God says to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In the second message in the series, we examined the concept of the term, the dark night of the soul. And we looked at Jesus' words in the Garden of Gethsemane from Mark 14, verses 35 and 36, it says, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, 
the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I think some of us have experienced something like that. We've had moments in our lives where we're like, oh God, you could do anything. Take this, take this away. I'm not sure that too many of us add that last part, oh, not my will, but your will. But I've certainly prayed that first part there, you know. Oh God, just get me out of here, get me out of this mess. Make it stop, change something, you know. And then uh, in the third message in the series, we took a closer look at Jesus' very kind and merciful words from Matthew 11, verses 28 and 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So today I want to continue with the series by dipping into the Old Testament and taking a look at an account in the life of David from 1 Samuel chapter chapter 16. Uh, But before I dive into that, let me just give a little background for context's sake. And so a little bit of backstory. In chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, we see that Saul is king over Israel and Judah. And through the prophet Samuel, God has given explicit instructions to King Saul concerning an upcoming battle. King Saul, however, motivated in part by greed and part by the fear of man, he he decided independently that he's going to modify those instructions. He's going to apply his own wisdom and his own logic and reasoning instead. Basically, he decided to keep some of the spoils of war for himself and for his men. So after this, when the uh, prophet Saul confronts him, uh, the prophet Samuel confronts him, Saul blame shifts. He shifts the blame onto his soldiers, and he rationalizes his actions with, with religion. So in 1 Samuel 15, 15, this is what it says. Saul responding back to the prophet Samuel. He says, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. So he's, he's blaming his soldiers. It was their fault, not my fault. And we only did this for your God. So, you know, not taking any responsibility whatsoever. As a result, this cost Saul the kingdom. And Samuel is sent out to find the next king. You might want to read chapter 15 for yourselves. It'll give you a, a fuller picture, but just kind of, you know, filling in a little bit of the backstory there. So let's pick up the story of 1 Samuel 16. Let me read you verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. 
Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. Now you got to get this. Samuel's a mighty prophet, powerful, powerfully anointed prophet of God. <clears throat> so Saul did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliam. I'm sorry. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider the appearance or his height. I rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outer appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadav and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord's not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shemaha pass by, and Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord's not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Powerful. I mean, just an incredible story. If you spent any time in Sunday school growing up, you probably have read this story. Just amazing. What an incredible account of David's calling and his anointing to be king. So let's take a look at some of the key players in this. First of all, is, is there Samuel? Now, we already know from the, from the account that Samuel's a prophet. But guys, he's not just any prophet. Maybe the greatest prophet who ever lived besides Jesus. In 1 Samuel 3.19, this is what it says of Samuel. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. He let none of his words fall to the ground. That means that of all the prophetic all the prophetic words that Samuel uttered, that they all came to pass. The, the message translates that verse this way. Samuel grew up, God was with him, and Samuel's prophetic record was flawless. Wow. Flawless. Could you imagine? No wonder the elders trembled when he came into town. If he said something, do you come in peace? Are you going to say good things? Because we know that will come to pass. If you're going to say not so good things, we're trembling because we know they're going to come to pass as well. None of his words fell to the ground. His prophetic record was flawless. Now that's astonishing. That's some serious level of revelation. i got to tell you, I've had the, the privilege over the years to meet 
some of meet and host and work with some of the greatest prophetic voices of a generation. And not one of them, no matter how anointed or gifted they were, would describe themselves the way Samuel is described. So here we have this incredibly high-level prophet. And he's on a mission to find a new king. Why? Because the former king implied, employed human logic and reasoning in accomplishing a task given him by God. And you know what? This major prophet seems to do the very same thing, at least at first. So, get this. When Samuel anointed Saul to be king, this is what we found. Back in 1 Samuel 9-2, it, it says this. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Right? So he anoints Saul. What does he find? Oldest son, only son. Handsome, taller than all the rest. So who does the prophet go to first at Jesse's house? The oldest son, the tallest. Someone who apparently has a good outer appearance, right? First Samuel 16, I just read these verses to you, 6 and 7. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Could it be, could it be, that even the great prophet Saul was operating on automatic pilot? <laughs> this is how God chose a king last time. Let's assume that he'll do it this way again. Right? His own words here. Surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. Well, surely not. <laughs> it's not the Lord's anointed that stood before him. You know, I don't know. kind of looks like autopilot to me. I've fallen into that routine myself. And when I do, the creator just likes to show me just how creative he could be. And not going to kind of do the same thing the same way over and over and over again. 1 Samuel 16, 10-11 tells us that they went through seven of Jesse's sons. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen thee. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives, meaning... Get with it. Move, move, move. I'm not sitting down until your youngest son shows up. So they go find David. And he indeed is the one that God's chosen. Powerfully anointed by the prophet that day. Which tells us something about Jesse and his sons, right? So other key players in this story. Eight of them lined up in front of the whole town. You've got to know. When the prophet Samuel showed up, so did the rest of the town, right? I mean, the elders were there. They were aware of what's going on. You know something good's about to happen because he said he came in peace. He told the people to consecrate themselves. And you know something good's going to happen at Jesse's house because it tells us that Samuel himself consecrated Jesse and his sons. All this excitement. Obviously, something's about to happen. I'm not sure if the text... The text doesn't say it. 
I don't know if the people are aware what God's already told Samuel or about the interaction between Samuel and Saul you know, just beforehand. They may not know that Samuel's there to pick a new king, but he's there to do something. Right? So I'm thinking, I know that Jesse's there, his sons are there, the elders are there, probably the whole town. Everybody is there watching what's about to happen. So all this excitement, and not one of them thinks to mention David. Not any of his brothers. He's got seven other brothers online there. Not one of them thinks to say, hey, we got another brother. <laughs> this isn't the whole lot. I mean, I don't know. From their perspective, less competition. You know, there's more competition with eight than seven. I don't know. But none of them said, hey, somebody should go to David. They're all just standing there waiting, hoping that the oil's going to get poured on their head. But not even his own father. That's astonishing to me. Jesse, you got eight sons, not seven. What are you thinking? The prophet told you to go and get your sons. Why? Why, oh, why? Did you forget David? Not one of them stepped up to say, hey, wait a minute. We forgot David. Let's go get him. So this is either selfish ambition at worst or thoughtlessness at best. But it's not good. No one thought to invite David to the meeting. Not his father, not his brothers, not any of the people gathered until the prophet asked. So what do we know about David? Well, the text reveals some to us that David is the youngest, not the oldest. That he's out tending sheep. In the next chapter, chapter 17, his oldest brother, who got looked over first, describes the sheep that David tends this way. He says, a few sheep in the wilderness. He was mocking his brother. So David's doing a little thing. He's out in the wilderness... Ten and a few sheep. Later on in chapter 16, we, we discover that David knows how to play the harp or the lyre or the guitar. He plays a stringed instrument. We can see from this account that truly David had been faithful with little and that he was about to be entrusted with much. He tends a few sheep in the wilderness. Chapter 17, David describes to us how he fought off lions and bears to protect those sheep. He plays his guitar before God. He has a good heart. Because that's what God looked upon. And in God's eyes, these are the things that qualifies David to be king. And God picks him. So what's the application here for us? What does this have to do with the powerless place? Well, three things. I mean, I've probably said this to you a hundred times, two hundred times. Number one is this. God's ways are not our ways. There was no one in that town that had put their money on David that day. Even his father, even the prophet went through seven other brothers before they got to David. God's ways are not our ways. 
He doesn't pick the people we would pick. He doesn't think the way we would think. He does stuff differently. Sometimes it's even offensive to us, the ones God picks. The oldest brother was not too happy with David as a result. His ways are not our ways. 1 Samuel 15, 10 and 11, we're told that, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. He says, I regret that I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me and not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord that night. In chapter 16, verse 1, we see the Lord says to Samuel, How long will you mourn for, for, for Saul? Since I rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Saul is in a powerless place. He's angry. He's filled with grief. He's mourning. And in, as a result, he's missing what God wants to do. So much so... That in verse 1, God has, has to say to them, basically say, hey, wake up, move on. <laughs> right? I'm done with this, and we're going to go do that. He's in the palace place. Even the greatest prophet, maybe one of the greatest prophets who ever lived, he, in that place, in that powerless place, he relies on his natural instincts first. Right? He goes to Jesse's good-looking oldest son. And God corrects him. As we already read in verse 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height. I rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the other appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. His ways are not our ways. So in the powerless place, in the wilderness, in a place of weakness, we may be very tempted to rely solely upon our experience, our education, our own wisdom and logic and reasoning, especially when we're angry or wounded or offended or deeply disappointed. If you're in a powerless place right now, I caution you, watch out for these things. God just might have something different, utterly different in mind than what your own logic and reasoning and understanding might be considering. Be mindful of your cultural conditioning. You know, we all have cultural conditioning. Most people meet Nadine and I, and they're not surprised at all to find out we, we grew up in New York City. Right? There are cultural distinctives of being raised in New York City that leave a lifelong mark on you and the accent is only a little bit of it. I know, babe. They all have an accent. We don't have an accent. <laughs> there, there's cultural conditioning. If, you, if you're born and raised on the island, there's cultural conditioning. If you, if you lived in other parts of the world, we're conditioned by our culture and it puts us on automatic pilot sometimes. It was common in that culture to consider the oldest and the biggest and the strongest. But that's not what God was doing in this. Could it be that God wants so much and is at work in your own life now, but he's not doing it the way you're accustomed to it being done? Verse 
I look back on, on my Nadine's history. Only God would send a kid from New York City to some tiny town in West Virginia to plant a church. I mean, I've told you before, it was cultural whiplash. Why would he do that? Because his powers made perfect the weakness. He took me out of my strengths. Forced me to rely on him. It's what he was doing. I can, and there were times when we first got there, I'm scratching my head. It's like, God, did I hear you right? Man, I knew, it really sounded like you, but I feel like a fish out of water. I just don't feel like I fit. But I look back now, all these years later, and he was just training me, man. I pastored so many prophetic people there. Little did I know that years later, I would be, I would be part of a group that, that ministered to hundreds, thousands of prophetic people. But it started with a small group of people in West Virginia. We had one woman in that church, her name was Lynette, strong, powerfully gifted prophetically. And guys, you wouldn't, you wouldn't recognize me. Because I had like no box for it back then. I can remember sitting on the couch, meeting with her, I think it was in our house, and she said to me, okay, so answer me directly. If you have an impression on one side and you have facts and figures on the other side, which way are you going to go, Tom? I'm like, I'm going to go facts and figures every single time. Because that's exactly how I thought back then. And she, her head just dropped like, oh. like he's going to have, he's not going to respect these insights and perceptions that I have from God. There's got to be a special place in her for, in heaven. Because God used her and others like her to teach me how to pastor prophetic people and how to make space in my own life for the gift to arise. His ways were not my ways. They weren't even close to being my ways. I never would have wrote that script. I was a big fan of making five-year plans. None of that stuff was in my five-year plan. It was all over God's plan. I can see now, looking back, boy, I couldn't see it going forward. So, what's the application? If you are in a powerless place right now, if you find yourself in the wilderness, consider this. God's ways are not your ways. They're higher than your ways. Take note of what it says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. It doesn't say that God's ways may not be your ways. <laughs> it says that God's ways are not your ways. That they're higher than your ways. And his thoughts are not your thoughts. They're higher than your thoughts. So if that's the case, then there ought to be times when we come before God and we listen to him and he disagrees with us. Right? Because if every time we hear some revelation and it always agrees with our opinion, something probably not right there. Because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So be mindful of cultural conditioning. According to the culture of the time, David would never have been picked. And it, the evidence of it is he, the very one God chose was not even invited to the party. So strong was the culture. No one would have thought it possibly could have been the youngest son. But it was. God is not bound by our cultural norms or values. He often will lead us outside of our comfort zones. 
And when he does that, when he leads us outside of our comfort zones, it just might lead us outside of our wildernesses and our powerless places as well. Second application. There were two trees in the garden. There were two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. We were created from the beginning to eat from the tree of life. Yet we are drawn to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We were created to eat from the tree of life. And there seems to be this almost irresistible draw to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. My friends, if you're in the powerless place, heed my words. Go where the life is. There are times in our lives when we need to resist the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree that only fuels our natural logic and wisdom and reasoning and understanding, and we need instead to eat from the tree of life. We need to go to God. We need to go to Jesus. We need to go to the very one who calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. And we need to eat off of that tree. There are times when we need to live by the Spirit, even if, it con if it's contrary to popular opinion. We need to live by the Spirit. We need to live in, under the dominion of God's kingdom and not by the rules and regulations and the systems and the structures of the kingdoms of this world. There are times when we, as followers of Jesus, need to live supernatural lives in the power of the Holy Spirit and resist what's considered normal or reasonable or rational or natural. Back to West Virginia. I remember God told us to go to West Virginia. I sat down and I spoke to my dad about it. You have to understand, at the time, I'm bivocational in ministry. I got an awesome job in New York City. We, we were raised up, and this is what my father told his three sons. Get a city job. He says, you'll have job security, and you'll have good benefits. He just drove that into us. Guess what all three of his sons did? We got city jobs. <laughs> and I probably got the best one of the three of us. They paid me a ton of money. I was set for life, easy job, lots of money, incredible job security. I'm on the job three years. I'm a star in the union. They see this young guy who's really good at public speaking. I was set. And God tells me, pack up your family and move to West Virginia and plant a church. And so I remember sitting down with my dad, and this is just blowing his mind. He's got no box for us. He says, can't you plant a church in Brooklyn? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I could, but God said West Virginia. Right? Left all that. His ways are not my ways. Wouldn't have been anywhere on my script. It wasn't, to my father, it wasn't reasonable. It wasn't rational. It wasn't normal at all. It wasn't. I struggled with it too. <laughs> but we followed him. I can think of no better time for us to feast at the tree of life than when we're in a powerless place. Eat from the different tree. 
And the third thing is this, all wonder and mystery. Let me close with these things. Guys, awe and wonder and mystery are not problems for us to solve. They are our birthright. We were created for awe and wonder and mystery. I think centuries of the church have driven awe and wonder and mystery beyond its doors. And we've replaced faith with certainty. We've replaced awe and wonder with dogma and facts and constitutions and bylaws. If we serve a God of awe and wonder and mystery, well, we ought to be awed once in a while. Right? We ought to be, things ought to be wonderful once in a while. Things are at least ought to make us wonder on occasion. Maybe we have to stay in the place of the question mark and not just the exclamation point. There ought to be mystery. There ought to be a, a time between a mystery discovered and a mystery resolved. There ought to, that ought to be part of the process, the journey. Because if our God is small enough for us to completely comprehend and understand, then he's not big enough to be our God. Awe and wonder and mystery are our birthright. Do not settle for certainty and control because you know what certainty and control are? They are illusions. They're illusions. We were created for much more than that. Our God is the Lord of all creation. He is the creator of all things, absolutely everything. His nature and his personhood is inconceivable. It's inexplicable. It's unimaginable. It's incomprehensible. In other words, he's vastly bigger than my brain or your brain. The God we serve ought to blow our minds once in a while. And if it's been a long time since your mind is blown, you might want to look into that. Because back to the first thing I said, his ways are not our ways. And get this. Not only are his ways vastly different from our ways, he's a God who is 100% perfectly good at all times. And he loves us. He loves you. He loves you lavishly, extravagantly, unconditionally. Almighty God. God Almighty loves you. He's good and he loves you. That ought to give us some space to feel comfortable and at home and safe with awe and wonder and mystery. So are you in a powerless place today? I'm here to tell you that even if it's not making sense, if, if all the pieces of life's puzzle are not fitting together for you, you can trust him. He's a good God. He's a loving God. And you can trust him. He's worthy of your trust. Could it be? Could it be that not one day 
that not one hour, that not one tear that you've shed in your life has been wasted? Could it be that our God truly is working all things together for your good? Could it be that the Redeemer is actively redeeming everything in your history to prepare you for your destiny and for your calling? Could it be that you're a whole lot like David? Maybe you feel like you're in the wilderness. You're just tending a few sheep. You're forgotten by the very ones by the very ones who should have invited you. Could it be that none of that is enough to stop God or slow him down or hinder what he has in mind for you? On my spiritual journey, there's been ups and downs. There's been mountains and guys, there's been valleys. I've learned that I can trust our God. And as your friend and as your pastor, I'm here today to remind you that you can trust him too. Especially if you're in the powerless place. So let's pray. Oh God, have mercy on us. Grant us the grace we need to yield our ways to your ways. Help us today to eat from the tree of life. In our powerless place, in our wildernesses, in our weaknesses, oh God, you come and do what you said you'd do. You come and be our strength. Where we're weak, you be strong. Right now, Lord, in these moments where faith is stirred, where our hearts are encouraged, we choose to trust you. We, we choose trusting you. And Lord, when we struggle to trust in you, help us to trust you. Breathe life on us so we can. Amen? Amen. So we're going to close in a final song. If this message resonated with your heart today, where you're at in your journey, then please come forward for prayer. If you need help getting beyond the past or through your own powerless place, please come forward for prayer. If you need prayer for anything at all, please come forward and be happy to pray for you this morning. And I just had, I just had one sense of a word of knowledge. Is there anybody that's struggling with insomnia? Anybody have real trouble in not being able to sleep? If that's you, then come forward and I'll be happy to pray for you as well.